everybody. Welcome back to Game of Crimes, Episode 10, Part 2. But before we get into that, Murph and I would like to share with you some of the great content we have over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. We recently did a Q&A that was driven by you, the players who listened to the biggest game of all, Game of Crimes. You asked us questions and wanted to know what Murph and I thought about those. Well, here's a sample of that. So, hey, guys, we're, what we're going to do here is we have got questions that have come in from you over Patreon, and we're going to get to them. Uh, and some of these are multi-part questions. Guess what? You don't have to ask just a question. Uh, we've got a couple here, too, that folks have asked two or three questions that we'll get into. So, Oh, yeah. Kelsey here has got like a book. Thank you, Kelsey, though. I appreciate yeah, that. We're kidding we really you. Yeah, but hey, but no, look, again, this is this All this righty. is what hey, you Let's start off for. with the first one. We're kind of taking them in the order that they came in. So it's Frederick Nicolosi. I hope I pronounced that right. Frederick Frederick. Nicolosi. He sent a message. And actually, Murph, this message is for you. He said, hey, Murph and Morgan, my question is for Mr. Murph. After Pablo was killed, have you or any of your colleagues ever had your life threatened from his people? You know, uh, Frederick, thank you very much for the question uh, and the respect of calling me Mr. When you call Morgan, you know, I, well, I'm not going to tell you what we call him. It's a special name <laughs> we for get, him. Javier and I get asked this question a lot, believe it or not. Uh, you know, we have our worldwide speaking tour, and, and just like Morgan travels around the world talking about cybersecurity, you know, he's he's more than just an ugly face. He actually has a real job, uh, and he's, he's very allegedly. renowned. Allegedly. Well, we see you on Fox and MSNBC, and I see you on TV quite frequently. But uh, we, Javier and I always do a Q&A at the end of every show. Uh, we, <laughs> it's a funny story. We used to let people shout up questions from the audience, and that really got out oh, of there hand. There was a recipe for disaster. <laughs> uh, one of the most frequently asked questions is this question. You know, have we been threatened? Well, here's the true answer. Got another and one, too. Corey Southard. Hey, Murph and Morgan. First off, thank you for both serving our communities and country. It is our honor, but don't thank us. Thank the people who are still out there doing it. Yep. I've always been a huge supporter of the police. God bless you. My question for you is on August 5th, 2014 in Beaver Creek, Ohio, which is a sub uh, suburb of Dayton, Ohio. And I know the chief there, uh, Rich Beal. Um, so I've got a little bit of connection to this. Um, officers at Beaver Creek, uh, two at Walmart, two officers were involved in a shooting of a man walking around with an air rifle. And I'll give you some more context here in a minute, Murph. It was a huge deal around where I'd like I live. To know your thoughts on the whole case if you're familiar with it. Thanks again and keep up the great work with the podcast. So here's the quick, quick scenario. Points of 22 at you. You might think it's a freaking howitzer. <laughs> oh, yeah. When you're looking down the barrel of a gun, it's completely Kelsey different. Kouts, or Kelsey or Coots or K A U T S. You sound like you sound like Jimmy now. Yeah, Can't Jimmy Wiseman, right. not Westman, but Wiseman. <laughs> All right. Well, we know it's Kelsey, the first name. So she <laughs> she's been good. she's go. been messaging us and stuff. She goes. She, so she goes, Morgan gives Murph shit about his West Virginia roots, true, but Murph is a published author. What's Morgan got? Well, <laughs> I'm glad I you was asked. the technical advisor for America's Most Wanted for about a year and a half. I worked with him on developing solutions to catch criminals quicker, faster, show, better. Rebecca with... is very nice. Rebecca Foster has a, sent a very nice message. She goes, I have a very, hi, I, hello, I have a very general question and want to take the opportunity to say thank you for doing this podcast. My God, it is our pleasure. We dig this. We're having fun. So thank you You're for thanking kidding. us and thank you everybody, you know. Yep. She says, I live in a sketchy neighborhood in Manhattan. She says, New York City, not Manhattan, Kansas. Hey, hey, Manhattan, <laughs> Kansas is not sketchy. How could yeah. you even confuse yeah. so, the two? Keep going. 
All righty. She says, I see crime around me, but I had no idea the extent of it, which is usually the case. She serves on the community council for my local police precinct up in uh, New York, but I have no idea how to best support the police except to vote for city leadership that will vote for laws that allow the police to do their job effectively. So if you have any advice or tips for the public to support local agencies, I'd love it to hear it from you. So I'm going to talk. That's just a sample of some of the great content Murph and I have for you over at patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got three levels. Each of those levels comes with fantastic content content each level better than the next but i guarantee you you will get your money's worth we will over deliver for you you will always have great stuff to listen to each and every month patreon.com slash game of crimes now let's get back to episode 10 part 2 with michelle linhart from a baltimore city cop to making history leading the dea So a, a lot has to do with, you know, your bosses, too. You know, you need to, uh, when you're a group supervisor, you you got several levels. You got an ASAC, you got a SAC, and then you've got DEA headquarters. And, um, you know, you, you sometimes have to have to have to fight. You have to, um, you know, if they're not going to take a leap of faith that you can do something, you, you have to persuade them. And uh, but we had a good track record, so they usually let us run with what we wanted to run with. Well, and there was there was another little organization you guys took a look at, also, wasn't it? Just across the border there. Well, I, I happened to land in San Diego at the right time. Um, the, you know, everything was about the Colombian cartels. But if you were in California, you knew that all the routes were into the the routes into the United States, the routes across the country to move dope, whether it's heroin, coke, meth, you, you name it. They are controlled by the Colum- by the uh, Mexican organizations. So my group, which was a smuggling group, most of our cases were actually uh, you know Mexican trafficking cases. When I went to San Diego for the first time before I, I got my enforcement group, and it's a blessing now, um, I ran the Intel group. And I had a group a, of Intel analysts, some of which were, they had served in Mexico City, and they came up with knowledge of every major trafficker in Mexico. And we were able to help uh, the other groups, uh, enforcement groups and task force groups within the division, you know, putting the family trees together and, you know, who relates to who. Well, there was a file cabinet right outside my office that one of the best analysts in all of DEA, and I'll just say her name was Joan, and she came just came out of Mexico City. She brought that with her, and it was she called it the Major Trafficker Files. And in those files, if you would go through them, it was every major trafficker ever in Mexico, and it's complete pedigrees of who's related to who, where you know where they came from, what you know what their associations were. So it's a goldmine. I remember Chapo being in that, but he didn't have a major file. He was a part of a of another file. Because he was an assassin, he was a he was an underling. But one of the files that we started to get more and more information on was the Ariano Felix 
uh, organization, which at the time was known as the Tijuana Cartel. So my enforcement group, now we had just kind of finished doing ROCA and ROCA Suarez, and I just had these tenacious agents in my group. One of them, his name was Jack Roberts, Robertson. And um, he started to develop some intel that would give his venue in San Diego to do a case on the Ariano Felix brothers. All the, all the movement, everything had shift, uh, shifted. Late 80s, we were all chasing, you know, the Colombians were the sources. The Mexicans were the transporters. Now we're talking about 1990, 1991, we saw the switch. Now the Mexican traffickers and the Mexican cartels are, are really controlling the coke and the, the routes. And, you know, they're they the big dogs now. And one of those, especially that impacted all of Baja, California, was the Tijuana cartel. So Jack approached me with a couple of his partners um, and said, hey, what, do, what can we do? We need, we need to look at this. I knew of the Ariano Felix family because of those major trafficker files. Um, but the bosses were always, you know, worried about what's the venue? Are you going to spin your wheels? It was at a time when we really didn't have what I would say were trusted partnerships in Mexico. You, you know, a lot of stuff just stayed, uh, you know, below the border. So the thought was, we'll have Mexico City look at it. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we don't we don't have the time to spin our wheels on something that we're not going to be able to indict up here. And this was this was also pre nine eleven, so you didn't have the Title twenty one nine fifty nine and nine sixty codes. Yeah, we didn't we didn't have we didn't have any of that. Um, okay, I got to stop you guys there. You're talking in code again, you know, for you DEA types, you get to talk and encode, and then the rest of us little, you know, non-DEA types. So let's get clear. We talked about this with Zach, I know too, but uh, let's talk about 959 and 960. Why should people care about those numbers? T- Title 21 USC, it's United States code, but why, why 959, why 960? So they, those statutes gave us the ability to indict someone who conspired outside the United States to send dope to the United States. And one of the statutes let us go after, it was a narco-terrorist statute, let us go after anybody that gave material support to a terrorist organization. So we're talking, yeah, we're talking, we didn't have any of that available. And so all you had is your, you can't work effectively a case, a cartel case in Mexico without some cooperation from Mexico. And at the time, it was very difficult. Those, you know, we had informants being whacked left and right. Um, it was it was very hard. You, there were not the trusted partners that we had later when we started working Chapel. Um, so it was a time when it was, uh, you know, I had to persuade the bosses, okay, we want to open up this case. And and I've seen some stories written about, oh, and Michelle Lenhart only gave him six months to do the case. No, it was, well, why don't you let us deal, why don't you let us work it for six months? And then, you know, make a decision then. And I knew I was, I was 
I was on the verge of being transferred to headquarters. So I wanted to make sure that Jack Robertson and his group uh, of agents that he, he pulled together to work this, that they would have cover for at least six months to go do what they needed to do. And, you know, he is such a tenacious, great investigator that I knew in six months he would have a picture that would just blow everybody's mind and everybody would have to say, of course, we're going to work that case. That's exactly what he did. And I I remember at my going away party and leaving, um, I I just remember I knew that was going to be the next big case uh, that was going to, you know, put my, my group on the map. And sure enough, just, you know, a year later or so, that group became the uh, AFO group, the Ariano Felix group. And it was a combination of DEA, FBI, and we had great state and local partners on it. And they were, they were very successful. And they, they tracked down every little aspect of the Ariano Felix uh, organization. And on, a, on another episode of Game of Crimes, you'll hear uh, the final case agent uh, when at the end of the AFO investigation, we'll have him on and, and he'll describe that whole investigation for you. Yeah, we'll go into that. Hey, but you mentioned something, though. You said you knew you were headed to headquarters. So here's one time you're fighting headquarters because you're trying to do cases and stuff. And now you didn't you didn't want to be anything. You didn't even want to be a GS-13. They had to take your keys away from you. So <laughs> what finally possessed you to say, okay, I'll go to headquarters? Because now let's get into your ascent because you go from this point, you now are starting to ascend through DEA, which ultimately ends up, you know, in your appointment as acting administrator, then administrator. So let's talk about your headquarters. Why in the world did you want to leave San Diego and go to headquarters. I didn't want to leave San Diego. I mean, you got to <laughs> well, remember. What did they take away you, from you this time? Your gun, your keys, you your badge? You got to remember, even at that point, all I wanted to do was get back to Minneapolis and be the be the rack or be the supervisor in Minneapolis. But, um, but DEA, unlike any other organization I know, our forefathers had this idea that to really grow the agency and to always, you know, become better and better and better and have very good leadership, that you needed to touch the base, touch different bases, um, actually do different duties and jobs within DEA, and that that would make you the most effective leader. And they were right. Uh, so a part of that was if you raised your hand and became a group supervisor, you knew at some point you were going to be rotated into DEA headquarters, which is like, that's 98% of the time, that's taking uh, somebody that just wants to stay out in the field and do cases and run their groups, that's taking them out and putting them in, you know, Bringing them to Oz, that's bringing them, you know, to to headquarters. And I, I, I used to always say, okay, I'll go be a political prisoner uh, and do my thing, and then I'm coming back out. And that was kind of the mindset. So it was my turn to rotate into headquarters to learn the bigger picture of the organization and you fight I love how it. You're doing all of this air quotes too. It's like <laughs> <laughs> the bigger picture. <laughs> but you well, some people it. refer to, some people <laughs> refer to going to headquarters as going to Disney world and, and, you know, and you're working firsthand with Mickey up there. Yeah. <laughs> but in reality, 
every one of us that fought, nobody says they want to go do it. And and if you do raise your hand and say, I want to go to headquarters, you probably weren't doing a good job out in the field. Yeah. yeah. But this is how they they our agency found a way to develop leaders. And as as you go through these positions, you know, then the kind of the cream rises to the top. And 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 from that you figure out who the leaders, future leaders are for the agency at the higher levels. So I went kicking and screaming. I I was I was devastated. I always knew that was gonna have to happen, but I went. But where's the first place I land when I get there? The kingpin strategy working on the Escobar desk. I mean, Woo-hoo. it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> so, you know. Oh, you mean Murph and Javier had screwed it up by then? <laughs> well, so what, what month in, you got there in 93, right? What no, month yeah, was that? Uh, March. Okay, so he was killed in December 93, so give you a little context here. Yep, yep. So that whole time, um, you know, this is when he's on the run, you know, the whole time. And I was working with Barry Abbott and a couple people on the desk. And uh, Love that guy. We Love were, that guy. We were, we were supporting Javier and Steve and the agents, you know, uh, the boss, Heath, and everybody that was down there, Toth, everybody that was down there um, to, to help capture Escobar. When did you first meet Steve? Oh, boy. I don't, I don't know. Well, obviously, you didn't make an impression on her, Steve, because she doesn't remember. <laughs> well, we didn't want to talk to headquarters. We just wanted their checks. That's we right. wanted the I, money. I had always, I had always heard the name Steve Murphy, but I never really got to know Steve. I think until Steve, when you were in Atlanta, as um, an ASAC, as an ASAC. Yeah. So the whole time he's down in Columbia, I mean, you may have known the name, but you guys never met or talked strategy or did anything like that, right? I don't think so. We probably met in headquarters uh, after, after after Escobar was dead in early 94. They brought Javier and I to headquarters with uh, Bobby Davis and Doug Wonka were the bosses back then. And yeah. Steve Green was acting administrator. Yep. Yep. It was kind of an attaboy trip. And Barry was our man. I mean, Barry yeah. walked on water in our books. So, you know, we, they took us all over headquarters. Well, I think we met everybody there, but yeah. we probably met at some point, just didn't realize who each other was. Well, and I, I wasn't on the desk for very long. This is another one uh, uh, here, Michelle. You're going over here. I got grabbed, kicking and screaming. They said um, they had just decided to change kind of the, the whole atmosphere uh, of OPR, our our internal affairs. So I I had the uh, the talk, and they said uh, we need you in internal affairs OPR. Uh, I said, but I'm on the Escobar desk. I, I need to stay on the Escobar desk. <laughs> I mean, we had just gotten T-shirts, you know, and uh, I was like, wait a minute, T-shirts? T-shirts? You mean I worked the Escobar case, and all I got was this lousy <laughs> T-shirt? Come on, I, I never got one of those T-shirts. <laughs> I mean, come on. And uh, so I really didn't have a choice. So I I went over and I was an OPR, an internal affairs inspector, um, which was one of the hardest, worst. I mean, there's nothing rewarding out of it, except um, we discovered some people that should not be on the job. And we were able. And OPR is Office of Professional Responsibility, which functions, if most people are familiar with police, is internal affairs. Yeah. And Steve and I were talking about this too. You know, 
it's a necessary job and you never, you know, people who go to it, there's some people go to it and relish it because they like screwing with other people. And there are other people that go to it and say, look, I'm here to do my job. I want to do it. You know, I want to be right, but you know, I want to treat everybody fair, but I want yeah. out of here as soon as possible. And right. I worked with some people who relished that job. And those were the folks that nobody yeah. w- wanted to hang around with or buy beers with. Yeah, I kind of went into it with the thought, and there were good bosses. Uh, Tom Byrne Sr. Mm-hmm. was my mm-hmm. boss. He was fantastic. Kind of went in with the idea that, okay, someone's going to make an allegation against a DEA agent. Uh, I'm going to prove that that wasn't correct, that the, what they're alleging that agent did did not happen. But a lot of the times it did and then, yeah. and then you had to go where the evidence led you. And so there were uh, one, one of my cases was a female agent that we convicted and uh, it was a mess. But you know, we've, we've said on other episodes, there's nobody that hates a dirty cop more than exactly. a good cop. This, yeah. this person did not belong on the job and was a disgrace. And uh, DEA discovered it. DEA took care of it. Took care of it, and yeah. so I, I had a different opinion about that. Um, but still, I, I missed being on the Escobar desk. Well, I remember as a detective, I didn't work the, the IA stuff. But when they would open up, if it was potentially criminal, you'd have a separate IA investigation, a separate criminal investigation. You couldn't talk to each other. You had to come to your own conclusions. And I unfortunately had to do two investigations of, uh, you know, department employees. And it's it's no fun, you right. know? No, it's right. not. But then it's not also worth that there were some allegations made about people that um, were false. Mm-hmm. And Unfounded. so I, I then felt that feeling of helping an agent, you know, show mm-hmm. that they didn't name. do it. And yeah. and now some of them, you know, one one. One recently called, and he's a sack. You know, it's just, it's great that if someone didn't take the time to really dig into what that allegation was, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, well, we believe you did it and you're gone. No, we yeah. followed all the evidence and we, we proved that people either did something or didn't do something. It also, for my future positions in DEA, really really opened my eyes to, you know, that we have to do a better job on the front end of, you know, finding it's and not, hiring, hiring, getting the right people. So you don't have to deal yes, with it on the back end. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that background investigation and those decisions made about key. Who, it, absolutely. So it was very helpful for the future. It's interesting too, because there are usually three findings. Did you guys have the same things? Either it's sustained you know, which means, yeah, there's evidence to find you did wrongdoing. It's not sustained, which is kind of a kissing your sister thing. It's like neither here nor there. It's like, we don't have enough enough evidence to show you did it, but we don't have enough evidence to say you didn't do it either. And then there's the third one, which is the unfounded, which means there's absolutely no evidence for this at all. Did you guys have a similar kind of ranking for your findings? You know, I would say we probably didn't have as strong a middle ground. It Mm -hmm. was either you did it, or you did or you it, didn't. or it was, it was unfounded. Um, okay. But I think I think as the office and the attention on the importance of having a good, strong uh, OPR office, I I think that's changed a little bit. But at the time, you know, this was just the start of a new kind of um, mm-hmm. right. emphasis on integrity within within the agency. 
Well, let's talk about the next time you got promoted kicking and screaming and, you know, had to, you finally get a chance to move out of headquarters. And now as you go up through the ranks, right, there's group supervisor, then the next supervisory position is called what? Well, you, you know, you, you have, you have these trips. I had several trips into headquarters. So, yep. um, while I was on my first trip into headquarters after I did the OPR, I got uh, promoted to be the uh, secretary of the career board. So this is where you um, you kind of manage the all the promotional uh, files and um, present things to a board. And this is how people within DEA get promoted to the the supervisory and the assistant special agent in charge positions. So. Um, that and that was a job I did raise my hand for. So that's that's two jobs that I raised my hand for, um, and it was really eye opening because that's when I got to know the workforce. That's when I got to know everybody in DEA at the at that you know supervisory above level, and got to work with uh, the amazing you know. Uh, administrators and deputy administrators and chiefs of operation and, um, you know, the, the executive staff of, of DEA. And not to downplay that position because it comes with the title of executive secretary of the career board. It's not a secretarial position. It's a, it's an extremely, it's probably one of the most important positions of all the slots they have in headquarters because like you're the secretary of state. Well, you're determining, you're determining your future leadership, and, and that's something you really have to take seriously. You know, you don't want a bunch of jerks up there telling us what to do. We had, you know, we had a few of those. Already. Enough of those, uh, <laughs> you know, working the Escobar case. Um, hey, so what What was your favorite joke, though, about people? Look, because I, I tell you this back, you know, being from Kansas, we used to say that boy's so dumb he couldn't find a cow in a feed yard, you know, which they were full of them. And I remember one of the famous FBI ones was that agent so dumb he couldn't find a brick in Old Town, which if you've been to Old Town, Alexandria, it's nothing but bricks. <laughs> Do you guys have an equivalent saying for some people? You wonder just who was on their interview board? <laughs> uh, not that I remember. Hmm, I don't know about a saying. Oh, I see a, I see a conspiracy here. Nobody wants to admit that you had a saying. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, it'd be something like couldn't find his ass with both hands or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I just wondered if there was a DEA special one. You know. I didn't want to say that word, Steve, but that's one that came to mind. And one of the things you'll notice, folks, too, is we had this discussion. In your entire career, and Steve and I will do it, I, I do it more than Steve does, uh, but in your entire career, how many times have you said the F word? <laughs> once. I dropped the F bomb once. And folks, we're not kidding. I tried to get her to, I tried to get her, you know, push her buttons yesterday and stuff. She wouldn't, she wouldn't even come close. I mean, it's no cussing. You drop the F bomb once and it's kind of like. It's almost incomprehensible for some people to think you're in DEA. You know, it's kind of a macho organization. You're, and you've never dropped the F words. Is it what from Minnesota? Is it what Shucky Darns or what do you say? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny because I, I think it was in high school when I learned that the word fart was not a swear word. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, along with buying a lottery ticket was okay. <laughs> oh my goodness! You really did. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta get these Minnesota people out a little bit more. You know. <laughs> so, so, so you're doing this crew board stuff, and you learn a lot of stuff, right? Um, but at some point, you eventually start moving up the ranks uh, into the uh, assistant special agent in charge, the ASAC. So, how did that come about, and and where did you go, and did you raise your hand for that, or were you voluntold? 
I'll I'll never forget that uh, conversation with uh, <laughs> our chief of operations, Doug Wankel. Um, he walks into the career board. We're just about ready to start a career board. And on that career board are a bunch of assistant special agent in charge jobs out in the field. And I didn't put my hand in for anything. I, I just wanted to learn the career board. I hadn't been there that long. And uh, Doug Wonkel, our chief of operations, comes in. He says, hey, kiddo. I'm always kiddo to these guys, you know. Hey, kiddo, come in here. It takes me into my office, closes the door, and he says, <clears throat> you're going to L.A. I said, I'm what? And he says, uh, we're going to send you to L.A. I just talked to the SAC. He wants you out in L.A. Now, I loved San Diego, and I learned to love California, but I hadn't thought about going to L.A. <laughs> Those guys um, still disrespected you. It's like, you, the last thing you want to do is go out to the people yeah, who rejected your application. Yeah, I didn't, I, I did not. You know, I, I I was like, well, I wouldn't have even put in for that. I mean, what do you mean I'm going to L.A.? But it was the SAC, who was Bob Bender at the time, um, said he he needed me in L.A. And I didn't even really know Bob Bender. But um, Bob asked for me, and I said, well, you know, I was single. I can pick up, put everything in a box and move. I have... Boxes in my garage right now that have six or seven moving stickers on them because I haven't opened the boxes yet. They <laughs> move, move with me. Um, so I, you know, it wasn't like I had a choice. He was just kind of telling me that this is what's going to happen in my career board meeting. He's going to say uh, she's going to L.A. So I said, okay, you know, I'm a team player. All right. So I remember sitting through that entire career board and all I could, I couldn't keep my, I have to keep them on the agenda and keep them moving. And I, I could, I, I was just, all I thought about was LA. Oh my God. <laughs> How am I going to be able to afford a house? Oh, where am I going to, you know, I was, uh, I was really taken back by that, but I loved it. I loved it. I loved being out there. I absolutely loved the work, the office, the agents, the everything. Which part of LA so did you blessing. live in? I lived in a little apartment in Marina Del Rey, waiting to find a house. But then I got moved again. Well, that's a George Strait song, Marina <laughs> Del Rey. Oh, that's that's great stuff. Plus, that's yeah. a beautiful place. Yeah. 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 No, I didn't even. I think I was in LA six months and I got another phone call. Uh oh. But I was in, in LA long enough. Here was my deal with with Wonkel. So I told the chief of operations, okay, I'll go to LA, but I need enforcement because I knew that one of the jobs open in LA was had all the admin jobs. So I kinda kinda said, laid it down okay, I'll go, but I need enforcement. And I went out there and uh, Bender gave me a little bit of both. He gave me some administrative, but he also said, okay, um, you're going to stand up this this new 
set of enforcement groups. And so I got to start something called the Southwest Border Initiative. And so our primary focus, we started with two groups. Our focus was Mexican cartels and, you know, Mexican traffickers. So that that was right up my alley. Uh, loved it. Got there. Had enough time to just set it up. And then I got the phone call. Now, who called you? So next I get a call from the administrator, Tom Constantine. Oh, yeah. Everybody loved him. And Wait a minute. He, that, is, that, is that sarcasm or is that true there, Murph? Uh, that was a little sarcasm. He was the former <laughs> head of the New York State Police. Oh, I know who you're t- Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, he, he called, you know, the administrator. I had never had a call from the administrator. And... uh I didn't know what it could be about. I just got there. I was living in temporary quarters uh, with my, bo- you know, some boxes, and uh, it couldn't be possibly that I was going to be moving. And he, and it was tax day. It was April fifteenth that year. He called me and said, "Michelle, I know you just got out there. I need you back in headquarters. That, uh. You know, you can't tell the administrator no, right?" I mean, it's he, not like uh, going from Washington to Baltimore or down to Richmond. No. You know, the other side of the no. country. But the good good part was, he says, look, here's what happened. You know, we had had a little hiring freeze, and all of a sudden, we need to hire agents. And uh, he said, it's not working. Our, our classes have been filled. One academy class had like 12 people in it. He said, something's not working. I want to promote you to the senior executive service, the highest level at DEA, the SES, which all all the SACs and the upper level of DEA are SES. Uh, I'm promoting you to an SES. I need you to get here right now, and I need you to take over the recruitment efforts at DEA. And you'll have an office on the 12th floor, and you have free reign to do whatever you have to do to get hiring going. And so I, about two weeks later, you know, got out there and started working on moving the the big wheels of our our hiring process to get them going and greased and to get people, you know, into these classes. Because Congress all of a sudden said, uh, yes, DEA, uh, you're going to get 300 agents or whatever it was. And we had to go like that. I didn't know you got pulled back in to do that. I thought, I didn't know yep. that was your promotion to SES. I thought it was. That I was my was... promotion to SES. So how long did you do that? How long were you back in Washington? Um, got the call in April, was there all summer. So by by the next summer... So I was there about a year. Uh, then I got uh, Donnie Marshall. Walked in my office and said he was our administrator. He walked into the office and said, um, "I'm going to promote you as the first DEA uh, female SAC. You're going to go to San Francisco." Wow! And now that's significant—the first female special agent in charge. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so that was, that was, that was an honor. And of course I said, me, but I got all this work to do. We're filling classes as recruitment, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, no, you're going to do 
you're going to do a good job out there. I need you in San Francisco. So did you get the whole uh, hiring process at least, you know, unstuck yeah, to get it going? We had, we had, we had different, um, <laughs> we would have parties when we would hit different, you know, levels. And when we had so many people cleared and in the pool, we would, you know, celebrate. And when we ended up getting, you know, 40, 40 people seated in the class, we would, you know, so we were, we were there. We were there, and so it was a good time to to leave. Um, and I hadn't bought a house in D.C. I was afraid to to buy another house in D.C. because I had just sold a house in D.C. less than a year earlier. Well, hell, if you had tried to buy a house, you moved like ninety seven times yeah. in four years. Jeez. Yeah. Well, you know, and, yeah. and Donnie Marshall. Now, he, was was he the first agent that came up through the ranks and made administrator? Yes. Yeah. So he was. Yes, he was he actually was. a special agent. Yep. And it, and it was, uh, you know, it was such a, um, pleasure when, you know, he said, I, I need you out in San Francisco. So, so how did that go? Uh, I mean, and so let's talk about that because we talked about your challenges being a woman, being, you know, as a Baltimore cop, and now you're the first female special agent in charge in DEA history. How does that go? How does it go when you arrive out to your office there? Because the, that's a major, I mean, uh, uh, San Francisco is a major office, right? It's a it's a SAC office. It's one of the smaller offices, so it was a great office to start at. Um, but it's also a very politically difficult place to work. Um, but by this time, I I had it didn't dawn on me when you know he said you know you'll be the first you know female. I'm proud you're going to be the first female SAC. I. I had forgot all those years about, I just thought of myself as an agent. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into, you know, the, I didn't have time for, you know, thinking, uh, you know, I'm a female and I deserve this and I deserve that. It, there was nothing like that. So, so it dawned on me, oh my God, this is a major step for the agency. I have to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I went went to San Francisco, and um, absolutely, uh, you know, it was difficult. When the you say week, it was politically difficult, do you mean from the political level in terms of the federal and uh, Washington D.C., or do you mean difficult politically because of dealing with California and some of their unique uh, challenges they have with the way they view uh, certain laws? Difficult because San Francisco. Um, of all our field divisions, I mean, legalization, this was at, this was at the height of legalization of marijuana for medicinal purposes. And they were opening, opening up cannabis clubs and all this, you know, legalization, leading edge, all these changes. Um, But I had been to San Francisco previously on an LSD case. I, uh, one, one of my last cases in, in Minneapolis, I ended up being undercover and buying from the head of the American Indian movement and did that case. He traded me VCRs for LSD <laughs> and okay. how do you, how, how do you do, I mean, VCRs for LSD here, you get LSD can fit on the head of a, you know, postage stamp and you got to deal with these huge ass VCRs. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was again an undercover case, and um, one of, one of my favorite cases. Um, we started to see all this LSD show up in high schools in oh. in the Minneapolis area, and nobody knew where it was coming from because LSD had been gone for for quite I said, a that while. Was like a relic of the '60s and early '70s. Yeah. It seems like yeah, it really had been gone, and all of a sudden it was popping up, and it was inner city high schools where we were, you know, we started to see this. So um, one of my partners who worked for the state came up with a couple informants and the informant, a couple people had been arrested and they had said, yeah, well, I got it from this guy and this guy. And it brought us to the little earth uh, uh, inner city reservation, basically. Uh, in the middle of Minneapolis, and the head of the American Indian Movement was named Clyde Belcourt. In the middle of Minneapolis or San Francisco? In the midi- mi- middle of Minneapolis. Oh. And when we did the case, we arrested him, hand-to-hand buys, uh, which was huge in Minnesota because of his prominence. But the source was in San Francisco. So we, the case took us to San Francisco. So I had been there and I knew it's a difficult place to work. Very liberal, very liberal, um, criminal justice wise. And, but I loved the city. And I remembered, uh, one of our fellow agents, Richie Fiano had told me he had worked in San Francisco and, and that it was, uh, a difficult place, but he, he, he liked the city. And so I ended up in San Francisco and dealt with, uh, some issues that I had never dealt with before. And I'm very glad to have had that first sack post, especially in the charge post, uh, be in an office like that where a lot of the things I had done my whole career, I I could put to use there to solve some of the issues we had. But you didn't stay there too long, did you? No. <laughs> it's like you can't hold a job, Michelle. What's going on with you? You're like a fugitive, too. Were the marshals after you or something? What? You're, moving, you're relocating faster than, uh, you know, Rocco Suarez was. Well, then I, I got the call, and I, I think it was Donnie again, and it was, uh, we're going to move you to be the SAC Los Angeles. And at the time, I had only been in, I bought my house in October in San Francisco, and I got that call, um, I got that call about six months later. Wow. <laughs> so, when he called, were you holding your breath and he, he didn't say, I need you back in Washington? Uh, I, you know what? <laughs> Anything was possible. But I, when he said L.A., and because I had been in ASAC there for such a short period of time and absolutely loved it, I said, well, that will work. But now you're... And here I'm, you're going to LA is considered one of our major major decision uh, divisions in the United yeah. States. So LA is um, what we used to call a super SAC yep. office. Yep. Um, so you're going to have one of the largest, uh, not only largest offices, but the territory. Because with that, I had Hawaii, all of Nevada, um, LA metropolitan area, Guam, and Saipan. So. Uh, I, I, I didn't even hesitate on that one. I, 
I was more worried about, oh my God, I have boxes sitting in my garage that I haven't even... No, I'd be more worried about, I'm going to take it in the shorts on selling my house. I've only owned this for six months. I I was. I was. But every house I sold, I lost money on. I mean, I I just took that for granted, but it was one of the best things that happened. In six months, my... I, I made money on that house the first time. First time. Well, see, hey, so the stars are aligning. So you go out yeah. to Los Angeles. So um, again, how's the reception? You're coming in not just from San Francisco, which is kind of, it's almost like, hey, we're testing. I mean, you've been through a really good test at San Francisco because it's not just, you can do the enforcement, but it's now, how do you, you're a sack now. It's the politics. It's the people. Mm-hmm. You are now having to manage up in a way that you probably never had to before, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to managing down. Is that accurate? Yeah. And it was really good to have to kind of learn that and experience that in a much smaller scale. Um, but I have to say, the people that my ASACs, my group supervisors, I mean, everybody everybody in San Francisco made it just a pleasure to work there. It was the outside politics that were always hard. And and going to L.A., the best part was, okay, I had just started the Southwest Border Initiative when I was there as an ASAC. It was really starting to take off. I would be down there, you know, helping helping continue to run that. Um, I would I would get a chance to do Hawaii, Guam, and Saipan. You know, see see a different geography there and different trafficking trends. Uh, and then, and then have Nevada as well. So it was, it was going to be a challenge and I, I was ready for that. And probably one of the best moves I made was going to LA as a sack. Now, did, did something change in your personal life while you were in LA? <laughs> well, I, yes, uh, I got engaged, I go. got married, um, my husband was a L.A. County Sheriff's detective, uh, narco detective. Oh, of course. Act- yeah, you couldn't deal with patrol, just regular guys. It had to be narcotics. <laughs> right. Okay, we get it. We see well, the snobbery coming in. Yeah. Well, better than that, uh, on the DEA, he was on the DEA. He was oh, working on the task all the boxes, force. I get it. Dear mom, on narco task force, you know, task, you know loves yeah. drugs, you know. Yeah. No, he, he did. He he checked the box, every, every single one hey, of them. Now, did you meet him? at the IACP conference when you had to staff the booth? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, folks, if you don't know what IACP is, it's the International Association of Chiefs of Police. The largest convention of cops happens every year. I've been to those for years. And you got suckered in one time going to that because you were single. And it's like, but they say, hey, do you want to go to a conference, right? Yeah, me and uh, about three other female agents, um, you know, we got suckered in by Larry McKellen. Uh <laughs> He he asked us if we wanted to go work the ICP conference in Salt Lake City. And, well, there's a boom uh, in place. <laughs> and that we were going to meet all these cops. And it's, you know, we just thought. It's and, a target-rich environment. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I was single. A couple of them were single. We're like, oh, heck yeah. <laughs> who, who would not do that? And so... We went out there and we spent most of our time in a booth and then at night bartending, you know, at the hospitality room. That's right. 
<laughs> By the way, having attended many of those conferences, I thank you for that hospitality room because uh, when you're, especially when you're wanting to save your cash, especially in some high rent areas, it was always nice to have that anyway. But we kind of digress. So you didn't. So we've established you didn't meet your husband by having to staff. By the way, I find it a little suspicious that there were four women in the booth. How many men were in the booth? None. There's nothing sexist about that. None. <laughs> Come join DEA. Male chauvinist pigs. So anyway, but let's let's get back to LA then. So you, you get engaged. Um, this has got to be, I mean, how do you prep your future husband for the fact is, hey, honey, one day they're going to call me and we're going to pack up and move. Was he prepared for that? Well, you know, I, I met him. I met him when I was the ASAC. He was one of the task force officers in one of my gr- one of the groups I had and uh i i knew he had two boys and i thought he was married i didn't know that he was getting divorced um i always i knew him i always liked him i just didn't ever have a connection there that maybe there would be something so when i came back as sack and he he tells the story about after i left he sent me a, an email saying, congratulations, after I left L.A., congratulations, um, I think, on, on uh, being uh, a SAC in San Francisco. And, but I never got it. And he, he claims to this day that he sent me one. And um, I didn't think anything about it. By then, I had already figured I'm going to be single until I retire. That was my mindset. I hadn't dated for about 10 years. I not seriously. I, um, I figured, okay, it was just going to be about all, all about the job. And then when I retire at age 57, then I'll go find, you know, the man of my dreams. Um, but it just happened. And I, I remember when he asked me out, I, th- I thought it was a buddy thing. I didn't even know it was a date. <laughs> and we're going to go do my, a war. We kicking in a door. What are we doing? My, my sister listened to the to his um, voicemail, and where he said, "Hey, uh, do you want to catch a movie?" And I said, "Well, that's that's just Gene. He's one of the task force guys." And she goes, "I think he wants more <laughs> than to go to the movies." <laughs> and I'm like, "No." I don't think so. I don't think it's that way. You think it is? Well, here comes and, Alice again, the one who didn't know about lottery yeah. tickets and fart yeah. was a cuss word. Yeah. So I, I had, I had no clue until he showed up my house that this was going to be a date. And then, of course, I had run it through my, um, I had run it through my head. Well, what if I get this wrong? Maybe it is a buddy thing, because all my friends were men. Uh-huh. I mean. It was nothing for someone to say, hey, do you want to catch a ball game or do you want to, you know, Grab go to a beer. movie? Yeah. You know, but, but, uh, but he, he, he's such a good, he's such a good guy. So I was so bothered the first 10 minutes he was at the house because I didn't know what it was. I decided that I needed, his sons dressed him to come on the date. <laughs> And um, even from, I, I just had no clue. I couldn't, I couldn't tell which way it was. And I knew I'm going to blow it here. If I think it's one thing, it might be the other. So I just said, hell with it. And uh, I laid a kiss on him in the, in our kitchen. As he says, I attacked him in the kitchen because I knew that 
that would tell me whether or not it was the date or not. And and he attacked me back. Oh, all right. Oh my God, this is starting to sound like a Maury Povich episode. So And they said the so, heck with the movie. That was it. Right. So that was it. Did you and see the we, movie? That's what we, we want went to know. to the movie. Did, oh, you made it to the movie. So okay. We went to the movie, all right. Um, and what was but, the movie? Oh, you don't want to. It was election. And now I'm I'm really going to get Gene pissed off here. But so so he's nervous. I'm nervous. Um, he's divorced. He hasn't been on a date. So this is his first date. He's, you know, not sure about it. I could tell he's a little nervous, even though he's a cocky narcotics officer, you know. Um, so he goes up to get the tickets and uh, he looks at the the marquee and he says to the woman, two tickets for erection. <laughs> Oh, wait till I see Gene the next time. (laughs) He must be standing there. (laughs) Uh, Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I almost died. (laughs) Now you know it's it's a date. (laughs) Yeah. So, anyway. I did not see that one coming. You, Miss Goody Two-Shoes, I did not see that one coming. Yeah, uh, Michelle. If I see you at IACP this year and he's with you, I gotta ask him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so at our at our wedding, our our two sons, um, they were a uh, senior in high school and one just going into college. They reenacted. <laughs> they did an, a reenactment of our first date. Oh, that's great. That's oh. great. Oh, see, folks, you don't get these kind of stories just reading the newspapers. This is. You know, real life. Or any other podcast. So after we've established that, you attacked your future husband. um, And he, I mean, he was, he was just there, you know, innocent victim of your, you know, uh, onslaught of emotion. (laughs) Um, But but at some point though, at some point though, it's like, how long is, by the way, how long had he been on uh, LA Sheriff at that time? Oh, he had been on since the 80s. So 89, probably 15 to 20 years. Yeah, I think he's a 25 year veteran, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but at some point, um, I mean, you do a lot of good work out in LA, and so your name starts getting floated. How did you find out that your name was getting floated for the next huge promotion that you were going to get? Well, we were newly married and furnish, furniture shopping, and I got a call one night from Asa Hutchinson. It was a it was a Saturday evening, and we were just finishing up shopping. And uh, I thought, oh, that's not good. I'm getting a call and from Asa the administrator. At the time, the administrator. Was, okay, he was the administrator, and um, he said, Michelle, I need a favor. I need you. <laughs> I'm always. <laughs> I'm like, okay, here's another favor. What do you need? Uh-huh. And he says, I need you. I need you to um, come to headquarters. And I need you to help me out with something, and it'll be about. I need you to come tomorrow, and it'll. I need you here for a couple months. And uh, he said, and after that, you know, I would really like to um, have you come to headquarters, and you know, I, I permanently. And I said, uh, excuse me, sir, but you know. I just got married. It took me 45 years to find a husband. <laughs> I said, I just I just got married. I said I'd be glad to come and help you for a while, but I I I can't move yet. 
And plus, I just got to L.A. And uh, he understood. He was so good. He goes, I understand, but it doesn't mean that I'm not going to call you a year from now. So I knew eventually, and I was prepared in my head that at some point I was going to be not even asked, probably told to come back to headquarters. So you're saying the first time you turned it down? I mean, you did. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I, I said I would do. I said I would You'd do, do the a two favor, months, but didn't want to move. But um, and it, and he wanted me to come in to take one of the executive staff jobs permanently. We had just, our chief of operations had just left. Did you think that that was going to hurt you if by not taking that position at that time? Well, I was close enough to, you know, I, I knew, okay, I could, I wasn't 57, so I, I couldn't retire yet, but I just felt I would make it work no matter what. And Gene wasn't, he, he was actually a little younger than me. He had more time to go, but I got to tell you, Asa was so understanding, <laughs> and I think he he was new to our agency, and I think he didn't realize that I had made like five moves in four years or whatever it was, and I just needed to, uh, it was the first time I ever said anything about my personal life, you know, s- saying, no, I can't because this other person. I it was always just me. I'd never had to worry about somebody else before. So it was it was interesting. But it all worked out. I I I went into headquarters um for it ended up being about sixty days what to help. The, what was the kind of work what what did he have you do for those two months? He he had made some major moves within our executive staff. Um he had moved out he needed someone to come in and run the office of personnel and the um, human resources division. Uh, and then there were other jobs on the executive staff that were opening. And I think he was trying to talk me into one of those. And, and so I went and I helped him out and was able to kind of continue doing my SAC thing in LA, but be in headquarters and, and my job was to kind of search out somebody, um, stay long enough to do interviews and and pick somebody to come in that um, I could recommend to him to run our human resources division. So I, I, I did that. I, I did him the favor and then got to L.A. And shortly after that, he was he was gone. So then I, I didn't have to wait for that call a year later <laughs> with him saying, okay, now you owe me, you know, you told me no once, now you need to come in. Yep. So that, that didn't happen. How long were you in LA before you finally got that call? So everything was fine until uh, early late July, early August of 2003, everything changed. Um. Uh, Asa, Asa moved on. Um, Karen, it was rumored that Karen Tandy was going to be our administrator and she was going through the process, uh, confirmation process. And where was Karen coming from? She was uh, the head of the OSADEF, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. She's an attorney uh, that grew up within the Department of Justice and had actually worked um, in the Deputy Attorney General's office. 
She was running OSADEF uh, at the time, and she was the one nominated by George Bush to, to be the administrator. So now she had to look for a deputy administrator. John Brown had moved on. So I, July, August, I, I got a call from Karen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she persuaded me as to why I was the one that had to come in and bite the bullet and be the deputy administrator. What did this persuasion, you say persuaded, you just, you don't gloss over that stuff with us. I'm sorry. Was it money? What does pers- <laughs> <laughs> did she hold your keys to your G car again? What, what no, was it? Nothing like that. I mean, part of it was, she said, you know, even though, you know, I'm a narcotics, uh, you know, lawyer and I've I have I I know your agency and I I'm not an agent and I would prefer to have a deputy administrator that is someone who's grown up within the agency that knows the agency um you have you have touched every base you have done well at every step I know all about you people have recommended you and um you know I I need you to think about it so I thought about it. I talked to Jean about it, my husband. And I knew if I didn't say yes, she eventually could just bring me into headquarters anyway. Yeah. <laughs> she could order me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I then I, I thought about all the good things. I mean, I had all the respect in the world and loved John Brown and the job that he did had done for DEA. And I had the best role model as a deputy administrator in, in Steve Green. I really respected him. I worked with him. I, I, uh, I, I really, I saw how that position really um, is the, I mean, you have all the responsibility um, yes, the administrator runs the agency, but it's the deputy administrator that really has a day-to-day contact with the other leaders within DEA um, and is kind of doing everything behind the scene. And I just thought about it. I thought about, I actually gave her other people to think about, <laughs> you know, well, how about this person, this person, nice this try, person. Nice try, nice try. There's that Minnesota nice coming out. Oh, I like you, but you know, this guy's really good and this girl's good and this person's good, you know. <laughs> so, um, but so part of it was wanting her to get off to a good start and have a way to learn the agency. And 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 to feel like she was the closest, it's the closest she could be to being an agent. Um, and the other was, I love my agency; I'll do anything for it. And we were at a time where uh, lots of things were were, were changing at DEA. Um, we had gone into what we called priority targeting. Um, a, a different way of okay, we can't go out and arrest everybody. We have limited resources. Let's let's find a way to to really focus on who gives us the best. You know, um, uh, who 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 are the organizations that are really running things out there that we need to be paying putting all our resources to. Um, it was after nine uh, eleven. I had an interest in doing whatever, doing my part, 
And so part of it was that patriotic, okay, it's my, it's my duty to do it. Um, I did not want to leave my field division. I thought that's where I was going to retire. I thought I was going to retire as the sack of L.A. But weighing it all out, talking to Gene, he had a few years until he could even think about retiring. Um, we thought we could make it work doing a, uh, doing a back and forth uh, for two for a couple years. Um, I thought I could be the deputy, uh, help Karen out for a few years, and then uh, ask to come back to LA or or you know kind of plan to retire. Uh, two years, as Jean always reminds me, turned into twelve. So now you you come in and the the deputy administrator that's a presidentially appointed position also isn't it It is which was another okay more paperwork to fill out and go through this whole process and I you know DEA is not political drugs should never be politicized we are um we sh everybody I don't care what side of the aisle you're on everybody should care about drugs and do what's best for our country so I had never been involved in the political process. I was a novice to that that whole thing. To me, it was do what's best for your community, do what's best for you know safety of kids and um, politics. Uh, I I wanted nothing to do with. But that is a political pointy position. So um, I had to do some soul searching to see. You know, can I, I'm kind of crossing the line there. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm I'm still an agent, but now I'm going to enter this political, kind of political world. Um, I'm a part of the administration. I'm going to be working for a president. You know, I, I had all that to think out. And uh, I, I, I d just kind of decided, okay, I'll do this. And did it, and then when, you know, two years became five years, and then Karen announced that she was going to retire, and there was, you know, we were, you know, close to a change of administrations, and, you know, there was so much um, unrest, unsettled, you know, nobody, nobody knew what was going to happen, and we were, we were firing on all cylinders on the drug end internationally, domestically, you know, we were doing so good. Um, I just, I just felt, okay, I need to stay a little longer to help with this transition, never thinking that I was going to be asked to stay on and be the administrator. So how did that work out with Gene? So what did, did, did he punch out? Did he retire during this time while you were uh, at headquarters? No. So because we thought at first it would be two years and then maybe I could go back to L.A., we kept the house. We had a house in Redondo Beach. Um, we kept the house. He stayed and worked on the task force. I went back to Washington. Um, we would we would just plan trips. You know, we'd sometimes meet halfway in Minnesota. And we just we just made that work. And in a way... He's he's a workaholic like me and obsessed with his his cases and stuff as well, and we just made it a 
kind of made it a rule every night that 11 o'clock DC time that we were going to get on the phone and talk to each other. We never bothered each other. I, I don't think I ever got a text or a call from him during the day. I never bothered him. We just we just did our thing, and at 11 o'clock DC time, everything stopped, and we got on the phone. How many hours of sleep were you averaging if you're up at 11 o'clock at night to take phone calls all the time? I mean, are, are, are you getting enough sleep at this point? Okay, when the deputy, I mean, there's just, you know, you're getting calls, you're, you're putting out fires, you're, you've got an inbox like you wouldn't believe. I mean, it's, you just never sleep. So my routine was usually uh, talk to Gene, read for a couple hours, go to sleep, get up early when I can, and then plow through all the, all the inbox uh, in the morning and then go into the office. I don't think the, the 12 years I was in headquarters, I don't feel like I ever had a good night's sleep. Jeez. Oh. I don't feel like I slept. Oh, man. And, and just to have the stamina to do it. I mean, it, part of that goes back to being in shape, you know, working out, you know, like you had done before. But um, what was it like to have to sit there with a lot of senators, you know, and answer a lot of questions because you have to at one time be true to the mission, but at the other time, be artful enough to give them the information they need so that they'll vote for you. How, how difficult of a balancing act was that? Well, for the the deputy position, I mean, I was pretty aligned with the... Um, Bush administration? With the administration mm-hmm. and where they were going, especially on drugs and, um, and uh, you know, a lot of the... Um, Democrat senators, and uh, you know, I had I had some relationships um, uh, that developed uh, while I was the deputy that helped me when uh, it was time to have a confirmation, you know, to be the administrator. But um, I, my my whole thing, I I was always going to be true to the agent, so it was always a kind of a a, a tightrope, you know. But at the end of the day. They always had, you know, I made sure that they always heard from agents' perspective, from DEA's perspective, this is what should happen. This is what we should do. And um, Karen Karen did the same thing. Uh, She, you know, what I learned from her was how to navigate the Department of Justice. That's what I learned from her. And then when I later became the administrator, um, this is when, you know, things were, the mission of the DEA didn't exactly fit with um, all the things that the administration wanted to do. And so sitting at a table, I felt like I was always the person saying no, or that we can't do that. Or, you know, I was always the kind of the, the person that was skeptical about the, you know, putting something in action or something that was going to change because I always thought about how will an agent, how will a group supervisor and an ASAC and a SAC implement that in a division? Um, I didn't come at it from the political view uh, and if if I had a downfall, it was probably that I didn't I didn't look at it from a political standpoint. 
I looked at it from reality, from being an agent, boots on the ground, a supervisor. Um, it's all about the safety of our communities. And sometimes um, that did not match what politically people wanted to do. So you ran, like I said, you did this deputy position. You guys are doing this coast to coast thing. I mean, which is just amazing in and of itself. But as you said, Karen um, was getting ready to leave the agency. You were in the current deputy position. How, how did you get into being, and let's tell folks too, I mean, you went through the Senate vote as a deputy, which was good because like you said, it prepared you, but why, what is the why is there an acting administrator? Why does it take so some so long sometimes to go from being an acting to actually being you know the confirmed one? Because I, I just saw this to a news article. Um, ATF hasn't had a permanent head you know for five years now. You know, so what what is the special distinction about an acting administrator, and why does that situation come up when you're um, approaching uh, the end of it an administration? Um, you time out. And what I mean by that is it was it was towards the end of the Bush administration. He actually uh, nominated me to be the administrator, but I timed out, meaning there wasn't a, enough time left in his administration to get me through the process and to have a confirmation hearing. So, how long would that process normally take if, if you were if you were in the middle of an administration? How long would it take from, uh, you know, being nominated through all of the stuff and getting voted on? Well, it depends. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit longer at the beginning of an administration because there's a lot of people to get through. Um, in this case, Karen left the end of uh, 2007, um, and you know, so I hung in there into two you know, 2007 into 2008, which was the last year of the Bush administration. So I think in March uh, of 2008, I think he nominated me. And to be able to get a hearing and everything, you pretty much would need to have that done by the summer. And um, so I was just a holdover, meaning I didn't go forward. So then when the new administration they had the election in 2008, the new administration comes in January 2009, they now start over. And I just held the seat as an acting while they determined what they wanted to do with it. Now, did you have full power, though, as though you were a fully uh, uh, a confirmed uh, administrator? Yes, because... Um, in succession with DEA, it's the administrator in the administrator's absence, it's the deputy. I was already sitting in that deputy seat so I could take over all the all the, the roles and responsibilities of the administrator, even though I was acting. It's not like they brought somebody in to be the acting administrator in succession in DEA. I, I was the person that takes on that role in the absence of the administrator. So it was a little bit easier. I'm glad it happened that way for our agency, less upheaval. Things really kind of just stayed the same and we stayed on a roll. Um, <clears throat> it didn't have to be disrupted. Plus you had already been uh, uh, a uh, unanimous, unanimously approved by the Senate. So you were already a presidential selectee that had been confirmed. Right. That's, and when he said unanimously, correct. what was your vote? Did you get any dissents that first time? No. 
It was unanimous. Actually, it was unanimous both both times. Well, that's because that's because you're Miss Goody Two Shoes and the popular girl from <laughs> no. White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Eh? <laughs> but everybody likes Minnesotans. Yeah. No, that's that's amazing too because that you know unfortunately in a hyper partisan or politically charged environment, you know you, you don't tend to see that. So the fact yeah. that you had unanimous votes both times that's I mean that's a huge achievement in and of itself. And the first time being a Republican president, the second time being a Democratic president. And you cross boundaries. So, so, so you. How long are you acting administrator before the Obama administration finally puts your name forward and you move through the process? I was acting a good two years before. You know, I just kept. I just kept with the mindset until I hear something different. I'm just going to continue moving the agency forward. And I really didn't hear anything for, I would say, two years. Um. I just I just kept doing the job and I think it's because they weren't focused on DEA. They already had someone who had been said it confirmed running the agency. I had good relations at the department. Um we were we were achieving amazing enforcement uh uh operations. Then what's the downside to having, is there a downside then at this point to having an acting versus a fully confirmed administrator? Would it have changed anything that the department did or, you know, the the administration did or the way you handled stuff? Or was it just, could anybody tell the difference between the fact that you were acting versus fully confirmed? The way it happened with our agency at that time, because I was already the deputy, already confirmed, it was like we didn't lose anything. However, okay. to... Within the agency, it didn't really make a difference. It does make a difference outside the agency because people don't understand DEA, the culture of DEA. They don't understand that. They just they just understand, oh, an acting. Oh, well, you know. You don't have quite the same authority then or the same yeah, political support. Like you're a temp yeah. employee. Yeah. You're, you're just holding the seat. Um. But in in our case, it, it was it was interesting. I didn't feel at at any time that we were pushed back at all, or something didn't happen because I was the acting. And you know, I'm very I'm very thankful for that because it allowed us to continue growing and moving and charging and you know do, doing what we were doing during this, uh, you know upheaval and, you know, anytime there's changes of administrations, you know, it's difficult. There's a lot of people coming in, a lot of people going out, but we didn't lose any downtime. Now, and I'll tell you from a, from a field perspective during this time, it's a little bit of a morale issue, to be honest with you, because, you know, our guys, our people, when I say guys, that's inclusive of the ladies as well. So I don't mean to sound like a chauvinist here, a male chauvinist, but, um, you look at it and say, well, they're not even, you know, Congress doesn't, or the administration doesn't even think this is important enough to address our leadership. And so, you know, the field standpoint is like, well, do we really matter? I mean, you know, DEA is a small agency to start with. Uh, is it that important to the administration what we're doing? Now, luckily, your leadership, that's when your leadership has to step in, and that's at every level from Michelle on down to the GSs and say, 
don't worry about that. You have a mission. You have a job. Get back to your job here. You know, we've got a mission that's critical to this country. You know, by this point, we're looking at terrorist organizations who are involved in narcotics trafficking that are, you know, negatively affecting our country, causing us Amer American lives. And, you know, a testament to DEA personnel in general is they all like, yeah, you know, it doesn't affect me. Doesn't matter who the boss is. We're going to do our job. <laughs> so... Uh, the boss just stepped into Morgan's office there, by the way. <laughs> uh, in case you folks, I'm not going to edit this out. It's going to go so funny. But look, the reason being, this has been such great content. We originally had shot for two hours. We're now going on uh, over three hours and eight minutes. Well, I got to tell you, I got two cats. One is usually pretty nice. Lee's over here in my the kitty perch in the office. But Fanny here, when her stomach starts attacking her, she actually has figured out how to slide my sliding <laughs> glass door open on my office, hop up on my desk, and interfere with my stuff. So if you hear a cat meowing or me going, God, get out of here. I'm not talking to you, Michelle. I'm just talking to my cat. Well, all, all I saw was this little tail wiggle. And I... If you saw Fanny, it's not a little tail. She, she has needs. Uh, <laughs> hey, I, and one thing I want to, I don't know, I want to see if Michelle remembers this. So uh, when we would have meetings over at the Department of Justice, parking is always an issue in D.C. And during this time, Michelle had already promoted me to the SES ranks. And I, I mean, it was either in the Office of Special Intel or, or at the Fusion Center. I don't remember which. But uh, if we were going to go to a meeting, then I would drive down to the headquarters building and park and we would have a DEA van uh, we had drivers and vans that would take you. And that way, they didn't have to worry about parking. They'd drop you off the front door, and then you come and pick you up. So in this particular instance, we're going to a DOJ meeting, and, and Michelle's coming as the administrator. And I'm in there, and I think Larry Hollifield was there up from Mexico at that time. And so we took a whole group of people over that meeting. Do you remember that, Michelle? You know what? There were so many meetings, uh -huh. I don't remember it yet. <laughs> well, this particular meeting is where the DAG got up and announced that Michelle had been nominated to become the permanent administrator for DEA. So, And the DAG is the Deputy Attorney General, Steve. You're lapsing back into acronym <laughs> speak. The DAG with the swag, who's got the bag. No, no, the DAG is the Deputy Attorney General, which is the number two behind the Attorney General. <laughs> and and you know what? I mean, Michelle's already been in a position, and, and, and she is beloved by our entire organization. And, but I, you, I think you were actually taken aback that day. I couldn't believe your response was uh, very noncommittal. It was almost shocking that, what? They're, they're really nominating me? But I guess a humble uh, reception is what you gave to that announcement. And we were just, we were tickled pink. We were just proud as we could be that they'd finally gotten around to getting the damn job done. Well, I, I probably was actually surprised because everything that, that happened back then on the transition, you know, my whole thing was, you know, I'm not getting a phone call. I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. And it was so up in the air. We never, you know, we, we never knew what was coming next. So um, if I, I wouldn't be able to tell you how it was even announced because I don't remember. So I'm glad you told, I'm glad you told me. I remember many a meeting in, in the Dag's office, but uh, yeah, no, no, I, I, I was were... just thrilled. I think it was some kind of award ceremony, to be honest with you, because um, Jim Dignan, uh, yeah, Jim Dynan was the deputy, was the assistant deputy OCDF. attorney general over OCDF. He was there. Tommy Padden was there. Uh, Tommy, I never call him Tom. Tom Padden, one of my best friends. But <laughs> now here's the cool thing. Also, this led to another first for Miss Michelle Linhart, didn't it? 
Let's see. What first would that be? Uh, first, first um, career agent female to ever run a law enforcement agency. Federal law enforcement agency. Federal law. Absolutely. Yes. This lady chat got she got more first in your life than you know. I, I can think of probably ten other people that can't combine to come up with as many firsts as you have. Michelle, well, let me ask you this. I mean, uh, as, mm-hmm. as first of all, as the mascot for the White Bear Lake, you know, bears go bears. You know, you go to Bemidji, you start off as a Baltimore cop. Did How far, uh, when you started DEA, how far away in your mind was the fact is that you would one day be the actually now finally confirmed administrator running DEA? I mean, did it ever, even in your wildest dreams, ever come into you and go, oh, how's this nice Minnesota Minnesota girl going to be one day? I'm going to be running DEA, eh? <laughs> no, it's it's funny. I never, I never, ever thought about the next step because I was always so happy in the step I was at. So, no, I never thought I'd be the administrator. And when I look back, it would Peter Benzinger told my mom, you know, my mom seems to think, oh, see, he knew back then. And I'm like, no, it's a lot of it is it's luck. It's fate. It's it just happens. Um, I never. I never saw myself anything being anything but an agent. And in fact, there came a point when I went from being the deputy attorney, deputy um, administrator to the administrator where I had to make a decision about if I would give up being a special agent. And it was a question that was asked because remember, if you're an agent, you can only go to age 57. Ah, so let folks know about this too, because under federal retirement, if you're still an, a sworn agent, you have to retire at 57, right? But you, but you can go beyond 57 if you do what? Um, in our case, it's you have to have approval. The attorney general has to allow you to stay on, um, can, can extend you to 60. So I had to make a decision. And one of the things um, when they said they wanted me to be the um, permanent administrator, I remember asking Eric Holder, do I have to give up being an agent? Because I wouldn't have done it. And no, I got to keep my 1811. It, it, I was never going to retire not so, as an so agent. You're throwing code uh, out there. So there's 1811s, there's 18. I, I'm, this is, I feel like I'm a translator here. I'm the, I'm the designated <laughs> Fed translator. I'm so sorry. tell people what an 1811 is. An 1811 is the series for a special agent. It's a job series. Um, it's a job series. But it means you can do what versus an 1810? What can an 1810 not do that an 1811 can? An 1810 doesn't carry a gun. An 1810 doesn't enforce the um, the Title 21. Um, you know, it's, it's a badge-carrying agent is an 1811, and they're the only ones that have that authority. And I just... I just would never give up being an 1811. So what um, Eric Holder did is he extended me to age 60. Um, I got to keep my 1811. I got to stay an agent. It's a title of it's a title of honor 
within the agent ranks of the Drug Enforcement Administration, special agent, believe it or not. Oh, no, I can believe it. But you also did something pretty cool, too. Uh, you can you can uh, kind of special give special designations or special deputies. You got to do something that's cool that n- nobody else gets to do, right? What what did you do? Who did you make an honorary <laughs> DEA special agent? Well, very few people know the story, but it's, it'll go down, you know, and, you know, what are my, you know, three or four favorite things that ever happened to me? Um, we were holding, um, and I was chairing the, um, the International Drug Enforcement Conference in Rome. Roma. You got to say it's Roma. In Rome. And we're not talking Rome, Georgia. No, no we're talking to the Rome, <laughs> Italy, Italy. That's right. In Italy. Um, it was my last IDEC conference, so I was probably 2014. And uh, before we left to go to IDEC, I said, you know, any chance we're going to be able to meet the Pope? He is, he sends our message all the time. He is uh, against legalization. He believes that nothing comes good, you know, good from more drugs on the street. I mean, he, he, I've seen some of his writings and, um, it was going to be kind of a surprise to the, uh, folks attending IDEC that we were all invited to go and meet with the Pope. So I knew before we left that we were going to be meeting the Pope and we procured a little box and we got a DEA agent, and we made him a credential, and his number, I think, was the sign of infinity, <laughs> and um, and I got to present that to him. And they told me they go, you know, he doesn't speak he doesn't speak English. Let let him, you know, talk to you, but you know, you're going to have to gesture and and all this. So. We get in this line to go up and meet him, and I'm carrying the box, and I know he doesn't know what's in the box, and I, I'm the next person um, to get up there to to talk to him, and I open the box, and it's got the badge, and I knew that he was was not going to say anything to me because they told me that he's not going to speak, he doesn't speak English to you, but I heard this giggle. <laughs> And so there's a picture of me giving him his badge and I explained to him that he's an honorary DEA agent and he just put his fingers on the box and kind of put his finger over the badge and giggled. (laughs) And it was, it was just the greatest, the greatest day. Um, he accepted that from us. And so. you were in Vatican. Now I might not be like Nixon, who got to give his badge yeah, we to know Elvis. How that turned but out I gave too. it yeah, to the yeah. Pope. Elvis was. <laughs> Elvis might have been into recreational pharmaceuticals, that it's been alleged. But uh-huh. hey, but but you were you were in Vatican City then, right? See, and yes. here's another neat thing: a lot of people don't know. Maybe some do, right? But Vatican City is its own sovereignty within. It is his own country. And one of the cool things about it, too, I had a buddy that actually went over there with the U.S. Marshals to do some security. The Swiss Guard are kind of an awesome group of people. Did you get, did you get a chance to meet the Swiss Guard? Didn't meet them, but definitely saw. <laughs> yeah. They're everywhere. Oh, yeah. No, and that's, that, that is yep. a whole other story about how you get to become uh, on the Swiss Guard and everything. So it's such a... Uh, now, were they in there very... Were they... I think it's... Are they in the blue and gold or kind of the... 
they're in the very, very yeah. colored outfits. Very don't don't think for a second that that's decorative. Those those folks are uh, uh, they're trained. So the Pope is an honorary DEA special agent. What other agencies can yes. say that? None. <laughs> oh, that's None. what a way what a way to end. So so uh, you get to make the Pope. Uh, well, and it's got to be a great thing too for you too, because obviously uh, growing up, you know, going to Catholic school and everybody talks about the Pope. Well, you know, beyond just giving him the badge, what's it like to be at Vatican City meeting the Pope? Well, it was it was surreal. I mean, being in the whole city is. Uh, is surreal, but being in the Vatican, being there in a in the uh, the big room that we all gathered in, and being in his presence, I mean, it's just I think back, and it is absolutely surreal. And I will never forget the giggle <laughs> that that came out of his mouth because it reminded me of like a little kid that was just shown his Christmas present. And uh, he knew exactly what it meant. You know, I was worried about him understanding what I said, but he knew exactly, and he he was thrilled. And the other thing that I will never forget from that meeting is that we had um, the attending with us was uh, the head of the Colombian National um, Police, uh, General Naranjo, who's one of my heroes. And he and his wife and I, I think a daughter or two um, were there with us. And he was just behind me in the line. But I saw him when he, when he came out of the line and he he was weeping. It was so Naranjo? special for him. Yes. It was wow. so special for him to meet the Pope. I will, I will never, ever forget, uh, you know, that day. And um, the whole thing was was surreal. Uh, we had over what a hundred countries attending, and so the heads of narcotic enforcement in all those countries were invited to meet the Pope that day. Wow! So and so many of them were first from South American countries. A lot of heavy Catholic areas. Very very Big Catholic. Catholic yeah. Very, and that is why that is why um, it meant so much to them, and and just see how moved they were. Just tore me apart. I will never ever forget that. Well, I know there's one other person you'll never ever forget too, and um, this has become kind of a um, a common thread among our episodes. But when I say the name Derek Maltz, what's the first thing that comes out of your head? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, be honest. Be honest. Okay, what comes out of my mouth is secret weapon. <laughs> there you go. I, I was once called by the federal judge in um, the head judge in Minnesota. He called me DEA's secret weapon. Um, well, there's a couple people within DEA that I have called the secret weapons, and, and Derek is right up there. He is one yeah. of them. We keep, we keep just pimping his name out on the, we're going to have Derek on at some point, but it is the one thing you'll see. And we've all, Steve and I've been out to lunch with Derek. The one thing I will tell you is when you go out to lunch with Derek, just bring a face shield. That's all I got to say. (laughs) 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 And don't be in the line of fire. (laughs) Uh, Derek, we love you, brother. This is all said in love. We do. We do, Derek. You talk about Oh, absolutely. Passionate people. Well, and it was funny because you and I were talking. I ran a big project down at um, 
Department of Justice. It became called One DOJ, but it was the Law Enforcement Information Sharing Program after 9-11. That's what's our strategy to share information between 18,000 federal, tribal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. We had federal representation. And uh, for two short weeks, Derek Maltz was our representative. <laughs> and I, I talked to him later, but I knew it was. He's kind of like, I could just hear Derek going to there. I can't stand this anymore. This is bullshit. I'm out of here. Get me on to doing something that's really work. I'm just not going to do this anymore. Derek lasted two weeks sitting in a room with a bunch of other people. <laughs> I remember hearing about that. <laughs> well, Derek walked into my office, <laughs> shut the door, <laughs> and and said, this is not the job for me. Please get me out Derek of this. Derek used a few more adjectives with you than what you're using with us. So, uh, um, No, lo- love him. I, I wish I could clone him. I'd oh, clone Steve. I'd clone him. Javier, I, I'd clone them all. I mean, this is, this is what I was successful because look at the people yeah. I worked with. Look at them. Every one of them. And then behind them, you know, we didn't talk. We haven't talked about it, but one of the motivators t- to stay, okay, go from being the deputy to the administrator, stay in the agency is. I feel like we owe it to the families who lost their loved one, uh, who were DEA agents or task force officers. And when I left, I think that the t- time we had eighty-two. Um, agents or task force officers on our memorial wall. And those 12 years I was in headquarters, I met every one of those families. And we met every year during police week for our memorial service. And I feel so connected to them. Number one, I mean, that's where you get your your energy. You, you That's what makes you remember why we do what we do. After meeting them, we will never forget the sacrifices that they made. Um, but how can you how can you not love this agency? I, there's nothing like it. The dedication. It's the men and women, not only agents. It's the intel analysts. It's the diversion investigators. The chemists. The support people. It, it's everyone. And it, it was we were just one big family. And, you know, we, we talked about a lot of nicknames uh, as we went through this program. But, you know, one of the most revered nickname I had, I'm sure there were nicknames that I didn't know about. But Mama Michelle was <laughs> one of the nicknames. And I love that because we were a family. Yeah. And uh, DEA will always be in my heart. There's not a week that doesn't go by where someone from DEA does not call me. Yeah. You know, uh, back last year before COVID took over, um, I got a call from Tom Byrne. And, uh, and and Michelle had mentioned him already. Tom's son, Tommy, started out as an intel analyst with DEA and then became an agent. Uh, good friend, came down to Columbia. We were there working on the Medellin cartel as an analyst. Uh, just really good guy. And he was murdered in New Orleans during a conference. And just, you know, first of all, the fact that I knew his son, Tommy, as a friend and an agent. And then I'd never met his dad. Oh. I heard heard lots of stories about him. He's, he's kind of a legend within DEA. But yeah. he called me to have lunch. And, you know, he, he was interested in our book. So we just to go sit down with the guy. That's how this family continues, even into retirement. You know, it's just because I like to say just because we retire doesn't mean our oaths have expired. And 
personally, I think every DEA agent lives by that creed. You know, retirement's just, that's you hit an age mark or you hit something else in your life, but you're still dedicated to the mission. You know, here's Michelle who, oh my gosh, you know, you, you have one of the most motivational stories of anybody we've spoken to so far with everything that you've achieved and you've remained so humble and you've got a husband who stood behind you the whole way. That was always a, a topic of discussion. We talked about Mama Michelle is how in the hell did they stay married? Well, she threatened him on that <laughs> one first date. One you know? in L.A. <laughs> She's held blackmail over his head. Yeah. He didn't want to get attacked again. <laughs> hey, well, I got a question for you. Um, a lot of folks will hear this podcast. It will come out later. We are recording it, though, in March because March is Women's History Month. And I think it's fitting that we talk to you about that because after DEA, I mean, you you became a role model for a lot of people Um not only male agents, but for female agents. When you look back on your time, what are a couple, two to three things that you look back on that you say, I am most proud of that I, not cases, I mean, but the impact or things, what are two to three things that you look back on now and you say, I'm most proud of the work I did because of this? Well, first it goes back to early on knowing that I had picked the right agency to put all my time and effort in. And it became very clear one day, um, my group in San Diego, um, we had a joint operation going with the FBI and a couple other agencies, and um, we were hitting a bunch of doors. And so here I'm on the entry team, two other women, DEA agents on the entry team. That was our role. We were you know, we were going to put ourselves in uh, danger uh, to get into this drug dealer's house. And at the meetup before the raid, there was another agency and their female agents were handing out soda. Oh. That day hit me and I, I knew... I always knew I picked the right agency, but that day did it for me. And I said, what other agency would have really, they don't look at it as, you know, male, female. They just want to know what kind of cases did you make? Will you be there when stuff hits the fan? Um, are you dedicated? Um, those are all the qualities that that DEA looks for, and what other agency would have given me all these opportunities? Um, it it just it doesn't happen other places. There are good places to work, but this is a this is a family and this is a home, and I found my place there. As far as women, you know, I was always realizing that. I was a role model in that if I wanted to bring other women into the agency, um, you know, I always had to put on the hat of recruiter because, you know, I can tell them, hey, I'm an agent and I did this and I did this and you can do it too. And so um, one of the things that hits me is that this is the agency that gave me all of those opportunities. And I'm not one, I don't like to burn a bridge. I don't like to talk bad about people. I like to just just do what we need to do to get the job done. And I have always felt that I had their backs 
but this agency always had my back as well. Um, and and so when recruiting women, it's so easy to, you know, the, especially women that haven't been in law enforcement, a little worried about the mission and, well, how, you know, there's got to be a lot of sexism and this and that. And, and I just tell them, look, it's all what you put into it, you know. I have a sense of humor. I probably have a very high tolerance for a lot of things, um, but it's also an agency that's going to embrace you and is, is going to love you, and and as you're going to rise, you're going to do be able to do what you want to do, as long as you stay true to yourself and you you work hard. There was a a female agent, and she's a great agent. Uh, she just happens to be female. She's on our memorial wall, and her name is Meredith Thompson. And I never met her, but she um, raised her hand to volunteer for one of DEA's most dangerous operations. And she was down in the jungles of Peru and Bolivia, and, you know, taking down uh, coca labs um, under Operation Snowcap, which we ran uh in the 80s and early, late 80s, early 90s. Um, she and four other agents were killed in a plane crash in the jungle uh, in 1995. We have her, and nobody looks at her and says, well, she's a female, she can't do the job. She was out there doing it, and she made every agent, not just female agents, she made every agent proud. And so there are people within DEA, like Kiki, there are people to remind yourself on bad days why we do what we do. There are, there are so many role models and so many um, people that inspire that, that the, my worst days on the job are probably better than, you know, than most people's best days. And that's, that's just our agency. And to me, Steve and Javier, I know we're sisters and brothers. We have the same heart. We have the same, it's all about that passion for the job and fire in the belly and recruiting. I am so worried about law enforcement as a profession right now. So when you guys ask me to do this, first of all, there's nothing that I won't do for Steve Murphy and Javier and all my other DEA heroes, but it's also a way to remind women when everybody seems to be against law enforcement right now, it is still the most honorable profession. And men and women are good men and women qualified men and women are needed in this profession so this year with covid i didn't get to do anything special for women's history month and i said yes to you guys because okay normally i would go talk to a women's group i would talk to a school i i would do something to recruit women and tell them about how great this agency is and that they if they want to just live a life of adventure and feel like you would do it without getting paid, 
you know, I, I volunteer to do this job. That's how much I loved it. Um, that you guys through this show have given me an opportunity to honor all the women in DEA that have have sacrificed and to look for future future women, future heroes to bring into our agency to make it even better. So I thank you guys for that opportunity. Well, wow. I, I don't know what to say. Usually I'm not at a loss for words, as Murph will tell you. <laughs> so I'm like... <laughs> Well, if you don't package this up and turn this into a motivational speech and hit the circuit, you are missing a golden <laughs> opportunity, Michelle. I mean, it is just. Well, let me ask you that because um, you you retired, but you didn't. But you didn't stay. You just didn't retire. I mean, you just transitioned to a different thing. And you mentioned a couple of things, all near and dear to my hearts too. I've got friends on the same wall. Um, been to too many funerals. Um, I was there when one of my good friends, in fact. Um, a guy that was on the sheriff's office, he took his first ride in a state trooper car with me and he decided he wanted to become a state trooper. I was there when they read out his name on the wall. Uh, and it's, that's just not a, um, you, you know, it's something that continues to hit you. Um, and, but, but you stayed involved with the, uh, supporting the DEA survivor benefit fund. You've stayed, um, and, and talk about your work too with dare. I mean, let's promote a couple things. So dare was big for a while and then it went away and now it's kind of making a comeback. And, and so talk about the things you've done post-retirement to keep you involved with the gang. Well, I, <clears throat> let me talk first about survivor benefit. Um, for those 80-plus agents and task force officers and police officers who are on our memorial wall, we, we have made a vow to send uh, their children to college and pay for it. Um, and we have... Um, put a number of kids through school, and we have many more to come. And so I just can't think of a better organization to be involved with. And I, um, the guy that runs it is a former DEA agent, and I call him uh, St. Dick. His name's Dick Croc. And again, talk about passion. And, and he's never, never going to let anybody forget about the sacrifices of these um, these hero DEA heroes, um, so I'm always involved in that, and will do anything to help uh, that organization raise money uh, to help the, our families of our of our fallen heroes. Um, Dare I uh, have been on the board of directors for Dare for quite some time um, since retirement, and now I chair the board of directors and. If there was was ever a time that dare was needed and the prevention message, uh, you know, needed by uh, school age children, it's now. And um, so I volunteer uh, to be uh, on that board and to run that board. But it's the men and women of the dare organization and all the dare officers. There's thousands of them in schools uh, throughout the country. Um, sending the right message because they sure our kids are sure not getting it uh, from watching TV, listening to music, or uh, in many families aren't getting it from from the parents. So anything I can do to to help dare, I do. Um, last night I spent some time on a uh, watching a fundraiser for our DEA Educational Foundation. Uh, it's been in existence now for 20 years, 
and it sends message the prevention messages. It does after school things for kids. And there's one program called DEA Dance. And I remember the day that uh, Bill Alden, a former agent who helped form this, came to my office when I was the administrator and said, Michelle, uh, can we can we start DEA Dance as an after school program? And I was 100% behind it. And to see what they have done with that program Fantastic. Um, the uh, uh, Association of Federal Narcotics uh, Agents, AFNA, um, I'm probably a member of AFNA, and this is where um, we retired agents and task force officers, um, you know, stay in touch, and they give out scholarships to our kids and our grandkids, um, and they will never, what I love about AFNA is um, this is just bringing together uh, men and women who've spent their whole career in narcotic enforcement, and they will never forget that this is really truly about helping our kids and and helping our country uh, through these the epidemic of drug abuse, and to do what we can as an organization to let people know what DEA is all about and what DEA does. So so those organizations and then a number of police organizations like IACP and the California Narcotics Officers Association, um, you know, I, I volunteer. Um, I, I've had so many job offers over the years. I... To stop getting job offers, I used to tell everybody, no, when I retire, I'm just going to be an analyst and work at uh, the L.A. Clearinghouse, L.A. Clear, which is an intel center. Um, I used to say that for years, and now when people call and they want to know, I said, look, I've decided I, w- I will never find a job that I can throw myself into or will be as passionate about. And I don't want another job because I had the best job in the world. Uh, so I just volunteer. Well, but let's remind everybody, you got into law enforcement, Miss Goody Two-Shoes, because you originally cheated. You poofed your hair <laughs> to five foot four so you could get in. <laughs> but you did what you had to do, you know, and that's what, I'm, that's what has been so impressive about talking to you. Look, we originally planned only to go a couple hours. You know, and like I say, now we're on three hours and 45 minutes. What's your story? I can't tell you, you know, and the work that you do post-retirement is just, you know, this is, you can't see me, the folks on the podcast, this is me saluting you for that because, uh, you know, uh, it just, you. It, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I can't talk for Steve because I never worked with you, but, I, you know, I know we've crossed paths. You know, a, a lot of us have done. I was at the conference when you told the story about um, uh, the 2012 International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference about staffing that I want you to end up, though, on one story. <clears throat> one of your biggest cases, and this is when I knew the game was afoot, you bought pills from a podiatrist. <laughs> One of the one of the first undercover deals I did in Minnesota. A podiatrist. Could you pick on anybody more less threatening than a podiatrist? <laughs> <laughs> hey, he was spreading those pills, so I went undercover.
yeah, you use that Sherlock Holmes say the game's afoot. You saw the embedded sarcasm in there, you know, the the you know, double entendre. Oh. You you've been on the show too long here. <laughs> yeah. If yeah. you're going to that. You've been sitting in that chair too long today. Uh, Michelle, I wanna say before we hang up here, before we finish off here, that uh, you know and I know this sounds cliche and corny, but thank you for your service, not only to all of us in DEA, but to your country. You've made us all proud. Uh, you have set the example. You've set the standard for others to try to achieve, especially I love the, what you were saying there about the women in law enforcement. Uh, we need more people dedicated to that. Um, thank you to your family as well for letting you come over and do it. And God bless your mom, man. That's one tough lady to keep you focused and to do everything in her power to get you to what you wanted to do in life. So uh, you come from good stock. Well, we we didn't mention we mentioned the volunteer work, but I really didn't mention that I do have a full time job. Um, my inspiration, my mother, um, who was born way before her time, she's now ninety one. Uh, Eleven years ago, and, and this was the hardest thing for me to be continue working. She had a major stroke, and she's paralyzed, and she can't talk. And she lives with me. Oh, God I bless take you. care of her 24-7. Yeah. So on the break, when we took our little break, I had to run down and and make sure that she's okay. But, um, you know, we all have to take care of our parents. We got to do what we have to do. And I'm glad that, that you brought up my mom because she really is the reason I am who I am today. Well, I've had same thing. My mom too, like I said, growing up like that, my mom was, she had her challenges. She dealt with her demons as well, but you know, um, but she held us together. You know, that was, I just want to know, I just want to know the conversation your mom had with the college people to get you those loans. I just want to know what she said. <laughs> that, that's what I, that's the great mystery. We want to know that conversation. I think anybody that knows my mom knows um, she found a way to turn the screws there. Uh, I thought Minnesotans were nice. She must have done it in a very nice way. Well, what, okay, what I failed to tell you was that I was born in Fargo. You held out Uh, on us. I held out. I was born in Fargo, and my mom was raised in Minot, um, she is a, a hard-charging uh, North Dakota woman, and uh, uh, I get a lot from her. And my favorite line in all of Fargo, I use all the time, and it was Margie when she says, I think I'm going to barf. <laughs> My favorite line in the whole entire movie. <laughs> and Minot is where the missiles are, right? That's where the Air Force has a base? Yeah. Oh, yes, no wonder you have to yes. be tough, you know, hanging around all those nuclear missiles and stuff. Oh, my God. You you held back. I'm Steve. This was Steve's job to do the research on this episode. I hold you personally responsible for missing Fargo. You know, I'm, I, I'm from the southeast, so Minnesota, North Dakota. I mean, where are those places? I, in that part of Canada? It's all the same, right? Well, let's bring this to a close. This is, like I said, this it won't come out during Women's History Month, but it was recorded during that. And I can't tell you, Michelle, how uh, how great it was to have you on. How honored we are to have the head, the first female head of a uh, that went came up through the agency, uh, and the first you know uh, woman uh, agent administrator of DEA, the first woman SAC of DEA. You know, you ha- you have made yeah. history. Um, as opposed to being a part of it. So you've made history and this is, it's been an honor 
to have you on the Game yep. of Crimes podcast, and we'll let everybody know. We'll, we'll put, you know, we'll, we'll try and link as much as we can to the great work that you're doing, and let people know. But again, this is us. This is me saluting you for your work. As Steve said, thank you for your service. We sincerely appreciate it, and we loved. You've been, you've been actually, you've been funnier than what I thought the head of a federal agency would be. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a good sense of humor, but God bless you, Michelle. God bless your mom and God bless Jean and your entire family. It's been an honor, true honor. Well, thanks, you guys. Stay safe. Well, again, folks, uh, you know, just this was... First of all, it was a two-parter, which was great. There was so much information in there. We looked at trying to cut it, just couldn't because it was great stuff. And again, like I said, you know, it was so sad that the the, the episode had to be preceded by the death of her mother. But when you see what her mother did for her, Murph, like, I thought she was a member of the mafia. She went in and made things happen at that college. Like, no, you're getting enrolled. Come back 10 minutes later. Guess what? Michelle's enrolled in college. Yeah, go grab your suitcase. You're staying. <laughs> Boy, I think about this. So, and and, all our players out there, think about this. Would you go spend the night in the bus station in Baltimore, Maryland? Oh, my God, no. (laughs) I went during the day, and I got, you know, just in the inner harbor, and it's like, oh, my God. I wouldn't go in there with a shotgun in my lap. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) Which would be the biggest thing in your lap. Um, Thank you very much. Hey, but no, guys, hopefully you enjoyed that. And again, uh, we're going to bring you more great women like this. Again, we've got another uh, very, very accomplished woman coming up uh, in in DEA. And we have, I have, so we've talked with Pam, obviously. Uh, We've got Sherry Oz coming up. And then we've also still working on some bad girls. What you going to do when they beat your ass? Bad girls, bad girls. Man, I hope we get this one out of of California. We're we're trying. We're working hard to bring her to you. You're not going to believe it. We're the hardest working people in podcast business to get this done. But anyway, hope you enjoyed that. If so, go to Apple Podcasts. Give us that magical five-star review. It's Disney. It's magic on ice. Whatever it is, we just know that it works. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more info about the show. We'll be updating it as we add merch. So we will commit the next thing we will launch within, let's say, 30 days is going to be the merch. So we will get that done and figured out. Follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter and at Game of Crimes Podcast on both Facebook and the Instagram, paypal.com. Use our Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com and head on over to Patreon. I'm telling Woo-hoo. you, we're adding people. Uh, it's really fun. We're getting a lot of good comments back. You can vote on which uh, show and TV show Murph and I are going to submit to the Narcometer. We've got bonus content, Q&A, random surprises, live streams, all of that good stuff is waiting for you at patreon.com slash game of crimes. And for you players out there, Steve, you know, we've had several people pledge And then after hearing some of the content and kind of the teaser I did for episode uh, part two of, I'm sorry, part two of the uh, El Chapo episode nine, we had a lot of people up their pledge so they could get access to the additional bonus content. So that was, as I say, that was wicked cool. Not, you know, not only that, now we, we absolutely will not disappoint. You know, I'll do my best to keep Morgan quiet on the $25 level. It's going to be a Got to be a hundred for that. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. That one might be like a thousand. I'm not sure. But uh, I absolutely, we're going to bring you some things that I, I, we think you're going to enjoy. Uh, like you said, we're going to do some live streaming things, and that's going to be a lot of fun where we get to see each other and talk and just have a little bit of fun together. Oh, yeah. And actually, you know, we may have a special announcement too for September, maybe a 
pledge drive, a membership drive like they do with PBS. We may have a special live stream <laughs> coming up in September to where we take on and rate what we believe is the worst fucking show on streaming video there absolutely is when it comes to police work. And you know what I'm talking about, Murph. Oh, I can think of one right now. I'm not going to say it. But. We're not going to say it. You're going to have to find out. Okay, folks. <laughs> well, you guys, well, thank you guys very much. Thank you all for being players in the biggest game of all, the game of crimes. 